Coming up on Tech Nation, Dr. Juliet Shore joins me to talk about all those workers hired by the new services we all love, from Uber and Lyft to DoorDash, Instacart, and more. An economist and professor of sociology at Boston College, she's here today with After the Gig, how the shared economy got hijacked and how to win it back. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about CGMs, that's Continuous Glucose Monitors. They create a picture of your food print, and they're not just for diabetics anymore. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five. With Moira Gunn, this is 5 Minutes. Remember SARS, the immediate precursor to COVID-19? How exactly did it start? In 2012, I interviewed David Quammen, the author of Spillover, Animal Infections, and the Next Human Pandemic. SARS did not start with humans. SARS emerged from an animal somewhere in southern China. It was a mystery for a while which animal it emerged from. And it got into people by way of restaurants, probably, that were serving wild animals in what they call the wild flavor vogue in southern China. And then it got into a man, a doctor, who decided to visit his nephew, go to his wedding in Hong Kong. So he went to Hong Kong and checked into a hotel. And from that hotel in Hong Kong, SARS spread to the world. Wow. How long did that take? Hours. Hours. Maybe a couple of days. The man, this doctor, checked into room 911 on the ninth floor of the Metropole Hotel, and he may have sneezed, he may have coughed in the elevator, and people up and down the ninth floor then left that hotel the following day, got on planes for Toronto, Singapore, Beijing, and Hanoi, and carried the SARS virus with them. 78-year-old grandmother flew back to Toronto. She was getting sick on the way. She eventually landed in Toronto. She died. By the time she died, her son was infected. He went into the hospital. He died. People in the hospital got sick. Some of them died. And that went on in these several cities. It all came from a virus, and that virus came from a wild animal. In retrospect, we know that the animal was a bat. And sometimes they pass from non-human animals into humans, and they don't cause disease. They become innocent passengers, new viruses that we're carrying around without any effect. There's one called simian foamy virus that falls into that category. Passes from monkeys in Southeast Asia into the humans who sometimes feed monkeys in sacred monkeys at monkey temples. And this virus jumps across. Simian foamy virus. One of the scientists I followed, Lisa Jones Engel, studies that. But simian foamy doesn't cause disease. Yet it's sort of an indicator of opportunities for other viruses to pass, and that's why she studies it, because one of those other viruses could be the next SARS. Now, we recently had on Bill Wasick and Monica Murphy with, with Rabbit, and of mm-hmm. course, Monica is a, a veterinarian. She explained how bats can very you know, quickly and simply, you just think they fluttered by you, but in fact, they've, they've broken the skin. I They're, just had lunch with Bill. That's a very interesting book. There you go. Rabbit, yeah. Very interesting book. And uh, we can understand about the monkeys. This doesn't explain how a gorilla could give you a disease, though. No. Because I would run. 
<laughs> from a gorilla? Yes. Well, that's, that's rational, whether the gorilla has a disease or not. But gorillas are involved in Ebola. Actually, what started me on this whole book project was I was at a campfire in a forest in Central Africa uh, in the midst of a sort of a cross-Congo walk, something I was covering for National Geographic. And at this campfire, I was talking with these two local guys, two Bantu guys who were working on this trek, and they started telling me about the time Ebola virus struck their village. One of them lost six family members. He had a niece who died in his arms. He was covered with her blood, but he didn't get sick. And then the other fellow told me, you know, there was a peculiar thing, too, when Ebola struck our village. Nearby in the forest, he and I saw a pile of 13 dead gorillas, a pile of 13 dead gorillas in the forest. And I knew from my reading of the literature, that Ebola kills gorillas and chimpanzees as well as humans. That was the moment. That was 12 years ago. But I never got that image, that phrase out of my mind. 13 dead gorillas near the Ebola-struck village. It represented the connectedness of us and other species by way of the diseases that we share. David Quammen's 2012 book, Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic, has received new interest of late small wonder. David Quammen is a three-time recipient of the National Magazine Award and a contributing writer for National Geographic. He recommends a different way of shaking hands with your friends. Use your feet. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, what about all those people who drive for Uber, who deliver your dinner with DoorDash, who stand in line for you from TaskRabbit? Economist Dr. Juliet Shore talks about after the gig, how the shared economy got hijacked and how to win it back. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us what a CGM, that's a continuous glucose monitor, can do for everyone, even if you're not diabetic. And now, Boston College professor Juliet Shore. Well, Juliet, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Now, the iPhone was launched 13 years ago, and since then... We've all been aware of social media and apps everywhere, but many of us don't know, at least by name, the sharing economy. What's the sharing economy? The sharing economy actually came out of the 2008 crash, and it was originally some platforms, the two big ones which were founded at this time, um, Airbnb, which is a, a, a platform that allows people to rent out rooms or in their home or their whole apartment or house to strangers. Um, and Uber, which is uh, ride hailing, originally called ride sharing, and then the smaller similar app, of course, Lyft. And all three of these were founded in the wake of the Great Recession. And um, they all now also very much take advantage of iPhones and other smartphones. 
nothing says San Francisco like Uber, Lyft, and Airbnb. Right. Then you've got lots of others, DoorDash, Instacart. Every day, new ones pop up. And one of the big issues is, is that the people who work for them are actually gig workers, uh, as you say, it's like it's 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 you get the gig and they share the payment. Yes. So one of the uh, big features of these gig labor platforms or sharing economy platforms, and we can talk more about that term because, of course, it's a very contentious term. And it's not only these big uh, multinational platforms that are part of the sharing economy. There are lots of other smaller and community based platforms as well. But Uh, A key feature of all of the commercial platforms in the sharing economy is that almost all of them hire people as independent contractors rather than as workers. And so they are typically paid by the job. So per ride or um, if you're an Instacart grocery shopper, you get paid per batch of groceries that that you shop for and deliver. Um, if you're an Airbnb host, it's per stay. So this is what we mean by gig, where people are not typically paid by time, as in sort of a wage over time. They don't get a minimum wage. Um, And they're also not paid when they're sitting around and they don't have a gig. So this has become another one of the big controversies in the gig economy. Ride hail workers who spend a large fraction of their time just waiting for rides, Instacart shoppers who are reporting a lot of difficulty getting batches. So the conditions of work for a gig worker are very different than those for someone who's an employee or hired on on different kinds of contracts. When we think about gig, we often think about uh, uh, a musician gets a gig. You know, they don't expect to get on a gig any kind of health insurance. But that's why you have musician unions, and they can get their insurance through the union. That's one of the big things in terms of these gigs. It's like, where do you get the benefits at a group rate that uh, employees always get? Right. And so the gig workers that we've been studying, um, and I've been actually studying this sector since the early days, my first Uh, research began in 2011, Um, those workers tend to be pretty disconnected. There are almost no unions, although there are a couple. Um, But for the most most part, they're non-unionized. And unlike musicians who kind of know, uh, you know, within a city, for example, many of the musicians will know each other. They'll be physically together at the same place and so forth it's much harder for gig workers to get to know other gig workers. So that's made coming together to unionize or to have any kind of collective action more difficult in this sector. And you're absolutely right that benefits is a really important thing because for these workers, all of the costs of working pretty much are borne by the worker rather than the company. So they have to bring their own uh, equipment, uh, capital, if you will. If you're an Airbnb host, you're bringing your apartment. If you're a ride hail driver, you're, you provide the car. You are responsible for all those costs. There's, there's no, um, uh, the, 
the company doesn't really have any long-term commitments to you. You're not eligible for unemployment insurance until the pandemic, which which uh, there was a special provision in the CARES Act, which made these workers eligible for some kind of insurance. They don't get workers' compensation. So if they're hurt, they have to pay uh, that themselves. And we have examples of uh, people in uh, who we interviewed in our research who were hurt on the job. I'll give you one anecdote because it's very telling about some of these uh, companies. This was a Postmates worker, I believe. Uh, we studied two delivery companies, Postmates and Favor. Pretty sure this was a Postmates worker. Uh, he was a uh, not at all wealthy, like very uh, economically uh, struggling young man. Uh, he would come up to Boston and sleep on his brother's floor. His brother lived here and, and do Postmates deliveries. And in the course of doing a delivery, he, he was riding a scooter and he was hit by an automobile and he was injured. But he was very worried about uh, the delivery that he had and what would happen to him if he didn't finish the job. Because if you are late or you don't finish, your rating goes down. They may actually de fire you. It's called deactivation. Um, and so instead of going to the hospital, which is what he sh probably should have done, he finished the job. And this happened after we had interviewed him, but we were uh, looking on Facebook. Um, the company has a face had a Facebook page. And they announced that this young man was getting a hundred dollar uh, bonus from the company. Ooh, you want to be hit by a car <laughs> because he finished the job rather than get medical attention. So that, I think that tells you a lot about the attitude of some of these companies toward the health of the workers. As soon as you said a hundred dollars and not a hundred thousand dollars, I, I knew <laughs> everybody, every listener knew where this story was going. Um, you know, you use a word with respect to the experience of workers after, and I think you're talking about all workers after the 2008 economic collapse. I'm not sure many people know this word. It's precarity, P-R-E-C-A-R-I-T-Y. Precarity, what is that? So if something is precarious, it's teetering, it's insecure, uh, it's instable, it's risky, and scholars have been studying what we call precarious labor now um, for about the last uh, 20 years, I would say, but especially over the last 10 to 15 years, because what we've seen in the workforce in the United States, but in other parts of the world too, is a growing shift from what we might think of as stable employment, jobs where People know the job will be there in the future. The employer has some obligations. Uh, of course, I'm a tenured professor. That's about the most stable job you could have. Gig labor is probably at the complete other end of the spectrum because these companies can deactivate or fire these workers, you know, basically with the push of a button and no process. There's no due process. There's not an HR process. Uh, there is some kind of automated appeal, but it's very unresponsive. Um, we have worker, uh, workers in our sample talking to us about how different it is than a normal job where you actually could talk to someone and explain what, ha explain what happened to them. Here, 
you're sending an email probably being read by a computer and not a real person because uh, particularly, you know, some Uber, Lyft, uh, some of these big platforms have have so little, uh, they call it customer service, but basically um, support for for these uh, for these workers. So um, that's what a precarious job is. And what we've seen in this country is that gig labor has taken that process of precarity one giant step forward because it's 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 far beyond just say being a worker um, in retail where you might get laid off or where the company has somewhat minimal uh, commitment to you um, and so forth. Here it it's just the absolute bare bones and in many cases almost nothing. Uh, that that the companies owe to the the people who make the money for them. I was pretty shocked to see the way these companies can put increasing pressure on these gig workers. I mean, let's go there. You sign up for one thing, but then over time, more and more pressure. Yes, and it's been happening in different ways. So, in some of the on some of the platforms like ride hail and delivery, there's a process that scholars call gamification, which is that the apps push people to stay on more and work more. So they do it through nudges, through sending, uh, uh, you, you, you want to turn off the app. They'll send you a message saying, are you sure you want to turn this off? If, if you go to this area, you can make this much money now. Or so and so forth. So that's one kind of thing, sort of trying to pull them back as they try and get off. All the 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 way the uh, bonuses and incentives have been structured are very much designed to keep people working. So it's do t- do ten more rides this week, and you'll get you know this much money and so forth. Um, so that's one one way. Um, that kind of nudging and incentive behavior really designed to keep work, people working longer. And one of the things we see in ride hail, for example, and this has been um, reported on in the press, is ride hail drivers working very, very long hours sleeping in their cars. Um, and the other, the other reason that's happening is that they've experienced what we call the da- a downward trajectory over time. When these platforms started, the wages were really good. People could make excellent money and there weren't that many drivers or that many delivery folks. Over time, two things have happened. The companies have really lowered the amounts that they're giving to the workers by upping their own, the commissions that they're taking. And they've overhired so that there are too many workers looking for not enough work. And so that that's another dimension of this, which is sort of getting workers into this situation where they're constantly looking for work. There was a great anecdote recently about um, Amazon delivery people who are waiting. Uh, they they are trying to do Whole Foods deliveries, grocery deliveries to people's homes. And the way the algorithm works is that it pings the closest driver. Well, people have gotten really desperate to get these uh these uh, tasks because the companies have overhired since the pandemic in grocery shopping and delivery, because that's where you've had a big boom in demand. 
So it's a group of drivers are sitting outside uh, uh, Whole Foods in their cars. They take their phones to trees located right next to the the, the uh, supermarkets, the Whole Foods markets. They put their phones in the trees. So those are going to be the closest ones to the building. Now, it's not actually <laughs> something that Amazon allows, but that's how desperate people are getting. And we're finding when we interview people now, increasing numbers of people who are really frustrated, unable to get work. And it's also creating a lot of hostility uh, uh, we're finding among some of the older workers, you know, the workers who have the longer uh, serving workers, people who have been doing, say, Instacart work since well before the pandemic, all these new folks getting hired and they're getting jobs, they're getting algorithmic priority ahead of the longtime workers, because of course, if the platform just hires them, they're going to want to give them some work to keep them, to keep them there. So you're also seeing um, tensions. And in some of our interviews, it's coming out as racial tension and ethnic tension. Um, So it's kind of ugly the way the platforms are sort of pitting uh, workers against each other. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira again, and my guest today is Dr. Juliet Shore, an economist and a professor of sociology at Boston College. You may know her from her many books, including The Overworked American and Plentitude, The Economics of True Wealth. She's here today with After the Gig, How the Shared Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. Hijacked? It's been hijacked. That's news, breaking news, you know. It's like, well, first of all, I love the shared or the sharing economy. It's like, who who gets what share? This isn't like where it's an equal share. It's like we know there's a share there. But um, but by hijacked, what are, you, what are you saying there? What are you thinking? Yeah, so I think to understand the hijack, we've got to go back to what the sharing economy was supposed to be and why it's more than just Uber, Lyft, Airbnb. Um, and, you know, just uh, to be accurate about this, Uber itself has never thought of itself as part of the sharing economy. A lot of journalists and people who write about it definitely consider it part of the sharing economy. It's never had that sharing ethos. But Airbnb has and Lyft has and TaskRabbit and, and many of these other for-profit platforms. But from the earliest days, the there was a community around these platforms, and it also included nonprofits, community-based sharing initiatives that we would really consider to be sharing. So um, time banks and makerspaces, food swaps, um, non-free uh, apps that actually give people free lodging like couch surfing or um, uh, sites that allow people to give things away like free cycle um, buy nothing sites and so forth. They all considered themselves part of the sharing economy. And there was a kind of community. I was part of a listserv of, of founders of companies and a few academics who were uh, creating this new thing. And there was a, there was a, a whole idealist discourse about it. And, and people didn't think, oh, the, uh, the, the for-profit companies are 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 doing something bad. You know, Airbnb was thought of as a company that was going to bring people together, help people make friends with each other, um, uh, reduce environmental impact because they claimed we won't have to build so many hotels anymore. So what I call the idealist discourse really uh, pervaded the sharing economy in the early days. And 
many of the nonprofits still have that idealist discourse. They they hold to it. Uh, I'm now starting to look at a food sharing app. It's a it's a for profit company, but it's uh, people give away food that prepared food mostly that they don't need, and people come and take it and give it to people who need it. Um, so it's a purely free uh, gifting site, uh, but it is a for profit company. But what happened with the big for-profit players, and even some of the smaller ones, is that the they began to veer away from those ideals and really just thought about, okay, how can we grow? And I don't want to say they thought about profits because these companies first think about, think about growth. They want to dominate their markets, and then they go for profits. That's when, when Uber has wiped out all of its competition and it's undermined public transportation, as it said in its IPO documents that it, you know, it, it, it considers public transportation a competitor. Once, once it's really made it hard for us to travel any other way, then it's going to raise the prices and go for profits. But so they wanted to grow, and and there was a lot of pressure from investors to to bring in more revenue, which fuels more growth and so forth. And so they just began to, to, to stray farther and farther from that, those idealist visions of the early days and really just start caring a lot more about making money. And of course, this is when they got into many of these much more predatory practices toward the workers, treating the workers worse. Um, and the hijacking is really from the point of view of the investors, the owners, the founders, um, who took that really wonderful idea of sharing and just made a mockery of it uh, by the way that they, you know, began to treat their uh, workers. And by the way, with Uber, it's also customers. They bought, they got a patent on an app that would allow um, allow them to tell uh, when you're drunk, so that they can charge you a higher price. <laughs> and they claim. They, Not so that they they can't, you, they don't want you in the car, but no, we'll just charge you a higher price. Well, the passengers. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. That's right. And and uh, so the, the it, it claim, they claimed they weren't going to do that, but, you know. Welcome to Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah. And I have to tell, I mean, the, the idea, and we can just take it, forget the shared economy. Venture capital gets behind a business model. You get out there, you try to get rid of everybody in the competition, and then you grow it to scale. And, um, you know, I was, uh, before I had this tenured gig, <laughs> I was a professor uh, in the School of Management. And there are an inordinate number of courses in every business school about how to make money on the work of other people and then grow it to scale. And then, and then that, that's this whole thinking. And it's like, is this part of the problem? We're not looking beyond the fact that you have humans involved and the work that's being done? Well, certainly there is a problem, particularly in tech now, but not only in tech, of companies coming to dominate in their markets. And so not just scaling from being a little startup into a, you know, a, a, a larger business, but the idea, which I think, you know, um, Uber is really the the poster child for this of market domination. 
So to completely dominate your market and to not have competition, because of course we see that with a number of the tech companies. Economist Dr. Juliet Shore is the author of After the Gig, How the Shared Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about your food print, how you, in particular, metabolize the food you eat. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, Boston College professor Juliet Shore is the author of After the Gig, How the Shared Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. Uber is really the, the poster child for this of market domination. So to completely dominate your market and to not have competition, because of course we see that with a number of the tech companies. We see it with Google, Facebook, Amazon. These are companies that so dominate their markets that they can set the terms and they've become so fantastically profitable as a result of that. That's not the way capitalism is supposed to work. There's supposed to be competition, which protects workers and consumers. And we often think about monopoly in terms of consumers, but of course, for the workers, if if Uber is the only game in town, or Uber and Lyft, who basically operate in the same way. So in a duopoly, you often get uh, mimicking behavior. We call that monopsony, one, one buyer of labor. And so there's a big push now among Democrats uh, to do something about this. And you've even seen a little bit you know, from Congress lately that the House just put out that report saying that we've got to do something about the lack of competition and monopolization in tech. What's kind of fascinating about the gig economy uh, that, that I that I studied, which is the in-person services, so ride hail, lodging, um, 
errand sites, uh, people come into your home to do things, the person is walking your dog. Uh, and increasingly, where I now I'm starting to look at uh, care work, is those are all local in person services. So the so-called network, you know, what we call the network externalities or the network benefits that that exist on something like Google or Facebook really apply very little. And the idea that you need a global, you know, a, a dom, one dominant company in ride hail doesn't make sense. It's that's not an economic necessity um, or there, there's not an economic argument for that. In fact, there's a lot of argument against it. Um but they are kind of adopting the playbook of the other tech companies by talking about, you know, the benefits of, of these, of bigness. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that we really need to look much more carefully at because these are local services, which could be very well uh, provided by small local companies. Um, you don't need global companies for serve in-person services that really just revolve around a neighborhood or, you know, something a bit larger than that. Well, I think now we're sort of in this area where you haven't given up. You're not just pointing fingers here. You're saying there can be economic models that actually remember all of the things that we were trying to get done in the original shared economy. Yes. And my team studied those. And uh, there's some interesting things. Let me start um, with uh, the difference between Airbnb and Uber. And here we can also put Etsy in a, a, a handicraft site. Now there are, uh, these companies are not perfect, but what's interesting about Airbnb is that the criticisms of Airbnb don't come from the people who use it. The hosts are happy, pretty much the guests are pretty happy. The company takes a, a pretty reasonable share. It's not gouging its hosts or its guests in the way that Uber and Lyft are gouging the drivers by taking commissions that, you know, at times can go up to at least 50% of what's being taken. Etsy has a relatively low commission. Airbnb has a very reasonable commission. Now they have reasons for doing that. Airbnb wants to keep people on the platform. If it charges too much, they'll go off platform. So with Airbnb, it's the people who live in the neighborhoods, the people who can't get uh, a place to rent because so many apartments have been converted to Airbnbs. It's the higher rents they have to pay for those reasons. So it's the outsiders, not the insiders. Um, so that's one, that's one thing to think about. There are platform companies that have kind of reasonable business models where they're not gouging. Um, and then the other thing that we studied, which is really fascinating is platforms that are owned by the workers themselves. And they're called platform cooperatives. And we did the first academic study of one. It's a photographer's cooperative. It is a global platform and there are people on it, photographers uh, using it and belonging to it, you know, who live in Eastern Europe, who live in uh, Asia, Mexico, you know, all over North America, etc. So, um, this is uh, a company called Stocksy United. Uh, it was started in 2013, I believe, and by some people who had a lot of experience in stock photography. So the workers get much more of the, the value of the photographs that are sold. So a much higher fraction goes to them than in, in the conventional stock photography platforms. Um, and they, they 
set the rules. They govern the platform. They have true uh, participation and um, voice, and they're they're very happy. Um, so they're the the reason I think these platform co-ops are interesting, and and I think really could be the future of platforms, is that a lot the, the algorithms and the software obviate or take away a lot of what management normally does. It's all being automated. You know, the artificial intelligence is doing the job. You don't need HR. You have customers doing the rating. You have algorithms matching people with, uh, you know, buyers and sellers and so forth. And so the argument that, oh, we need, we need this big management structure to organize this work really doesn't pertain on these platforms. And so it's really a kind of ideal situation for, for the workers to own the platforms, uh, for them to get much more of that value, um, which was one of the original parts of the idealist discourse, why, uh, taking out the middleman, bringing the buyer and the seller together and, and giving the customer better value and giving the worker more of what they produce. So I think it's a really exciting way to organize platforms. And there, we're already seeing more and more platform cooperatives being founded all around the world. One thing we're really good at is building technology that support these things. I try to tell people that before there were spreadsheet apps, you actually had to build a program that did a spreadsheet function. And then suddenly people say, hey, this is, this is a good general tool. And, and it's like, yeah. There can easily be general tools that support these kinds of economies, very simply. Absolutely. And it's true. Some folks are working on a whole toolkit where you can, you know, kind of like turnkey app for starting, you know, a driver co-op or a cleaning co-op or a home healthcare aid co-op. These are some of the areas where I think workers would really benefit from not having to give such a big fraction of what they make back to that, uh, the owners of the company. Well, the state of California has a new gig economy law, which went in January 1st, 2020. Um, hey, how come you published your book? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what that law says. <laughs> yeah, California is a fascinating case. So in 2018, a uh, California court passed a, uh, a, a case came, came through the court which very clearly uh, said that these gig workers were misclassified as independent contractors and should be employees. And that really wasn't a surprise. Plenty of legal scholars had been saying, look, these folks are misclassified. They don't fit the classic definitions of what needs to be for an independent contractor. One of the main things is that the worker can't be in the main line of business of the company. They have to be someone that you hire for something else. Like, you know, you bring a plumber in to fix the office uh, plumbing or something. They can be an independent contractor, but not the people who are doing what the company provides. Well, Uber kept saying it was a technology company, not a transportation company. Nobody bought that. But after Dynamex, these companies didn't change. And so the California legislature in its wisdom said, look, we're just going to pass a law, which is codifying what the courts have already done. And that was, that law was assembly bill five, which made all of these gig workers into employees. And that meant they got minimum wage. 
they would get breaks, workman's comp, unemployment insurance, all the protections available to employees under California and federal labor law. And also health insurance, uh, depending on the size of the company. So the companies said, nope, we're not doing it. We're, and they just flouted the law. The uh, attorney general of California and the AGs of uh, a number of cities uh, decided to sue the companies. And they went to court in the summer. And of course, in court, the AGs won. And uh, in, in um, I think July or August, I can't remember exactly when, uh, one, a, a judge said, look, you have 10, said to the companies, you've got 10 days to comply with the law. And the companies said, no way. We are, uh, we're going to leave the state. One, one Thursday, the Thursday that the 10 days were up, Lyft said, we're, we are uh, shutting off our app in California at 12 midnight. And Uber had said the same thing earlier. Well, another judge gave them a stay. But in the meanwhile, what the companies have done is they got a proposition onto the ballot, Proposition 22, which overturns AB5, gives a little bit of SOPs to the workers, not much, but you know some funds into a benefit, but also has some very uh, pernicious features. So it, it basically says that the legislature cannot amend this law unless it has a seven-eighths majority. So basically saying these workers will never be able to be employees, no matter what they want going forward if that law passes, because you can't pass anything with a seven-eighths majority. I mean, it's so far beyond the super... Pernicious. Pernicious. Well, you've got great words. <laughs> We've got, uh, you know... Pernicious. What was the one from earlier? Precarity. Uh, precarity. You've got hijack. You get you in the word. Uh, the, you get you get the word interview of the year, and it's it's only October. Um, now, of course, that uh, that you've been working for so many years on how employers control and affect the lives of employees, and uh, Wikipedia, that illustrious source of all data reports that your father developed the first specialty health clinic for miners in a small Pennsylvania mining town. And for everyone, I believe, you know, the health challenges and sheer terror of working, uh, you know, as a miner beneath, you know, it's palpable. Um, were you too young to, in, to understand the situation or did it, did it shape you in some ways? I think it affected me. I mean, that what my father was involved in was an incredible program that the United Mine Workers had, which was instead of getting health insurance, the coal companies paid the union, uh, paid a, into a fund for the union, and the union set up these clinics. And these clinics gave free health care from cradle to grave to miners and their families. And it was top quality health care. So they, they, my father was the first specialist surgeon in the whole region that we lived, and he brought other specialists. So instead of being operated on by general, what they called in those days, general practitioners, this was the first time miners had really quality specialty health care. Um, and it, it was a it was a phenomenal system um, that that was you know, really fantastic for workers. Um, it had some HMO kinds of dimensions to it because the, my father was an employee of the clinic. So he, he wasn't able to make an out, 
you know, a huge salary or anything like that. He really believed in what he was doing. And I do think that growing up in that mining, that town, which was made up of coal miners and steel workers, it was a very small town, 3000 people, almost, you know, no professionals, almost everyone was a working class person, um, absolutely shaped the way I, you know, came to see the world and the kinds of things that matter to me and the work that I've done. Well, you've been writing books for a number of years now, uh, from the overworked American to the overspent American and, and so forth. It seems that your perceptions about the work life of Americans is what we would call in math additive, meaning each new twist of technology and the global economy adds to the burden of the work. It's not like we shift from one to the to the other. And despite all the ways we could be entertained now, there's there's like no time for leisure. Yeah, it is one of the paradoxes of technology. And it, you know, I, I started my career thinking about this, which was uh, in the overworked American book. That was the first one I wrote. And you know, what I found was something really interesting. It was kind of, why is it that this technology, which promises to give us leisure, doesn't? And uh, I wrote that, I started working on this in the 1980s. And what was interesting to me was in the 50s and 60s, people were saying we were going to have, by the 70s, a crisis of leisure time. Because all this, they called it automation then. All this automation was coming in. It, you know, we could produce so much more in so much less time. People were going to have, uh, it was going to be a crisis of boredom. They were going to have so much leisure on their hands, they weren't going to know what to do with it. And yet, as I started, of course, that that wasn't happening. And in fact, the opposite was happening. I started looking at trends in working hours and saw that working hours were going up, not down. People were getting more and more, uh, feeling more and more harried and overworked and, you know, more and more uh, dual learner families where the total hours of the of, of family uh, in, in the labor force were going up. And so what I realized, and then, then I also went back to look at the Industrial Revolution and what happened then, another period of rapid technological change, is there's the potential that the technology gives, and then there are the economic and social relations in which it, it exists. And what happens in periods of with new technologies is often they make it possible to make a lot more money. And so the pressures for longer working hours come into four, which is exactly what happened in the Industrial Revolution. You had a massive increase in working hours with all the new machinery. And in many ways, you, you can see that with the gig economy, too. Um, and so I think, you know, the bottom line of my book is the technology gives us a potential. But if you want to realize it, you've got to put it into the right social and economic relations. So instead of having an Uber owned by a small number of wealthy people running the show, you want to change those social relations owned by the workers, the users. And that's when technology will really fulfill the promises, whether it's the idealist discourse that I talked about with the sharing economy, the promises of Silicon Valley decades ago, um, you know, cyber utopianism, as we call it. Um, and we can, we can realize many of these technological benefits, 
but not in a world where technology is owned and controlled by the few for their own benefit. Well, Juliet, it's been a real pleasure. I hope you come back and talk to us again. I'd love to. Thank you so much, Moira. My guest today is economist and Boston College professor Dr. Juliet Shore. Her book is After the Gig, How the Shared Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. It's published by the University of California Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. How does your particular body respond to the food you eat? Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft. Well, Daniel... What's that thing on your arm? Well, this little disc on my arm is actually a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, which, uh, when I tap my phone, pulls down six hours of my blood glucose data. So it's an example. Does it, does it vibrate when it does it? Do you know it's doing it? <laughs> I, well, it's pretty remarkable. There's this little device, and it helps it put on your arm painlessly. And it lasts for two weeks. And it's an example. We've talked in prior episodes about the Internet of Medical Things. Well, now I'm a bit extra transhuman, I've got this little device attached to my arm that has a little tiny needle that I can't feel that is tracking my blood sugar. And when I tap it with my phone, it downloads the data and shows what's happening inside my body basically in real time. And what's interesting, I'm not a diabetic, but it still shows me my blood sugar and how it might respond to uh, a big meal if I had a Diet Coke versus a regular sugary one, uh, what are the impacts of exercise, and maybe insights on my sleep and its impact on my blood sugar. I have to say, we've been listening to science tell us this is what happens. Well, now you're the science experiment. It's like, okay, I can have a, 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 a soda, a sugary soda, and let's see what happens, though. Now I'm going to have a diet soda. You know the difference. Right, and it's not just about the data, but putting it into context. Uh, I'm actually trying out a brand-new app called Vary out of Finland, and you know they're making this platform not just for the usual users, diabetics, but for everyone to start to understand what I like to call your metabolome, um, and because that plays such a key role in your health. And... Uh, I didn't have this issue, but let's say I saw that I was spiking my blood sugar several times a day or I was running over uh, 120. I might be pre-diabetic, and that would be something very important for me to understand and act on proactively. But where this is most impactful, these new CGM technologies, of which there are several, is that for a diabetic, they're almost like their own personal experiment. They often need to, if you're a type 1 diabetic, especially, and you're insulin dependent, you need to check your blood sugar several times a day and adjust your insulin dose. If you're a type 2 diabetic, you may to be adjusting certain meds or your diet. But this sort of data is, is gold in terms of being able to manage your diabetes and have your blood sugars in what's called narrow control. That When that happens, particularly over months and years, gives you a much lower risk of having the associated downstream side effects of diabetes, which include heart disease, renal disease, neurovascular issues. Well, the truth is, is that you don't quite know what all the constant up and down of your insulin is really doing to your system. Right. We all have different levels of what's called uh, insulin sensitivity. How, how does your body respond to insulin? To folks who may have uh, type 2 diabetes, they don't respond well to their own body's insulin. That's part of the pathophysiology of many types of type 2 diabetes. And the bottom line is this is a great example of now being able to continuously measure a form of data that usually only be done from a, a finger stick. And then to use that data and the insights from that to adjust therapy, whether that's diet, exercise, nutrition, or insulin. And that is dramatically changing the game for diabetics, all the way to the point where we're starting to c- connect a continuous glucose monitor with an insulin pump. 
And that's the idea almost of an artificial pancreas, because normally a diabetic has to look at those numbers, interpret them, put them into an algorithm, and adjust how much short or long-acting insulin they might take. Now we're seeing that happen in a sort of closed-loop system, and the hope is that will really dramatically make it much easier for diabetics to live longer, healthier, and safer lives. Now, two questions. Number one, does the needle get stuck in at the beginning and stay in there, or does it keep coming out going pokey, pokey, pokey? <laughs> no, it just stays in there. Pokey, pokey, pokey would be bad engineering design. I don't know. It's got, I don't think anybody has said that sentence before in the history of man. <laughs> well, it's got great design aesthetics, meaning that the device to implant it on your arm was super easy and the instructions were good. Uh, the app I'm using is very user-friendly, has got good design elements. And so, again, you don't need to be an endocrinologist or a scientist. These are built for the everyday human to glean insights without having to be a, a biochemist or a, a, or a hormone expert. Um, the important element here, again, is that we're trying to democratize medical testing to your arm, to your phone, and that data can flow you know, back to your primary care doctor, back to your endocrinologist, or back to your, let's say, your nutritionist to help you adjust elements. And we're entering this age now of connecting the data to uh, systems that help change both behavior and disease. Uh, um, several companies have now emerged where they'll connect your glucose meter with an app with a human coach to sort of look at your whole big picture. You know, what's your nutrition? How much exercise you're getting? What's happening with your blood sugars? How might you interpret those over time to en enable you to proactively manage your disease? Okay, here's my second question. What exactly have you learned about what you do or you eat over time? Well, in my sort of two weeks of wearing this, I'll, I can see that I have a big, you know, pasta, carbohydrate dinner. I'll, I'll peak over that 100, 110 for a little while. It'll maintain for a while longer. If I do a more heavily protein-based meal, it will just have a small deviation. So each of us has a bit of a different uh, response, a bit of a food print, not just based on what food you might eat and its content, but our content of our gut, our microbiome, which impacts how we metabolize uh, everything from, from a milkshake uh, to that salad. And so I think part of the future of medicine, which is exciting, is going to be precision nutrition. You'll be able to look at your CGM, your continuous glucose monitor, maybe only wear it for a week or two to get your baseline. We'll combine that with your base genomics, which might show you your risk of type 2 diabetes based on your omics. As many folks have uh, developed diabetes, even if they're marathon runners and eat great, uh, based on their ethnicity and other other genetic features, and then we'll be able to hopefully give us much more food as medicine, both to prevent problems, or if you do have a disease like diabetes, heart disease, even uh, neurologic issues, the diet can play a role in helping address and potentially even helping reverse certain diseases. I love this because the answer isn't, well, you can modify your behavior and be good, and here's the list of things to do. It's like, you know you. It's between you and the data, and you can say, I'm eating pasta on Sundays, so back off. <laughs> you know? And everything in moderation. You might want that pasta before you, you know, run your marathon, do your carb load. Um, combined with other sort of wearables, I'm wearing another app called, uh, a wearable called Whoop, W-H-O-O-P, which is made for exercise or, or for athletes, essentially. And it gives you this integrated score of your recovery based on your sleep and your resting heart rate and heart rate variability, and then measures what's called strain. You know, how much did you work out the day? Were you climbing stairs? Did you run a marathon? Did you uh, go play tennis? And it helps use that to guide, let's say, your workouts. Now, if you're a diabetic, that might be even more complicated because you need to tweak your insulin and, and potentially your meds and your diet. And so this convergence of not just your blood sugar data, but your movement data, your sleep information, all starting to come together, hopefully with some coaching. It could be an AI coach or a human coach to help someone 
stay healthy or if you have a chronic disease like type 1 or type 2 diabetes to manage that in a much smarter way and then to tie that to other comorbidities. Many folks with type 2 diabetes often have hypertension or have heart disease or have mental health issues. And we've seen companies now like Livongo, started six, seven years ago, now merging with Teladoc as an example of an integrated platform now combining with telemedicine. So when a doctor or nurse sees you on that televisit, they're seeing your data in context and they're not just seeing you as a diabetic, but it's John Smith with blood sugars that have been doing this over time and looking at your exercise patterns, et cetera. So really interesting time to make sense of chronic disease in a much more smart, personalized, proactive manner. So you have two of these devices on you. I can see you wearing the headphones. Have you got anything else going on over there? Well, I, uh, I also have my Apple Watch, which has a fair number of sensors on it. The new one I haven't gotten yet also can track oxygen saturation, which is not important to measure in most folks. But if it dips, can be at, at sleep time. It might be an indicative of sleep apnea. Or if you might have a COVID infection, it's important to potentially track oxygen saturation. And so we're going to see other things get packed into our future wearables, including the ability to detect blood sugar in real time without a needle. Uh, we're seeing uh, Amazon release, I think this fall, a new wearable that also listens to voice and tonality in voice, just like Amazon Alexa. Privacy issues can be a concern, are going to give us other layers of data. So this Internet of Medical Things in our digital exhaust, our digitome, is becoming more and more applicable. Yes, there are privacy issues. Uh, yes, there are challenges with how do we unsilo and connect it. But as we think about this shift from reactive, intermittent sick care to continuous proactive health care, sensors like this little CGM or my simple wearable on my wrist are going to be really part of our continuous proactive uh, future medicine and enables each of us to understand our data in context, share it with our clinicians, and help us you know, stay healthier or manage a disease. Well, I'm glad we got this worked out. You wear the medical devices in this relationship. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stick with that. We'll stick with that. Hey, see you next week. See ya. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician, scientist, and innovator. More information at danielcraftmd.net. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.